So, so um, let's talk about this film, and then we'll go back to we'll, we'll go backwards. Okay. Um, so, just to get a clear idea, this is illegal because you've 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 recut their. I'll, I'll tell you what happened. I, I made version. the film, you know, because it was like a great opportunity to make a film the way I wanted to, and uh, to shoot in Paris. The DP was the guy who did Betty Blue, obviously, and Juliette Binoche was just coming up as an actress, and you know, so it was fantastic opportunity, and I had a I had a, a really great time, and also, it was my first um, sort of like. I thought film that I could sort of control because as they said we're not going to pay you any money but you can do what you want you know never believe anybody in Hollywood um, so I you know I cut it myself and <clears throat> did the score and it was very much a kind of like treated like an indie I wanted to shoot it on Super 16 and they wouldn't and that was my first in a way little warning bell like if you if I can do what I want why can't I shoot it on Super 16 it's going on the telly you know what's the big deal but they they insisted on 35 so I I bit the bullet about that and then they flew over on Concord, as it as was then, to see it, and they, they cried, and they thought it was wonderful, and I delivered the film. And then <clears throat> about three weeks later, um, I was in a cutting room, and I got a phone call from, basically from David Brown, the producer, who's thought of as being the, you know who he is, right? He He's like, he looks like the Kentucky Fried Chicken guy, and he, you know, <laughs> he's sort of like, he's Mr., you know, He's ethical and, you know, blah, blah, blah. He, well, anyway, Mr. Ethical sort of said, listen, we've um, taken your score off and replaced it with another score and we've re-edited the film. And I went, I was just completely gobsmacked and said, why, why would you do that? I mean, you said this was going to be a director's medium, you know. And I said, well, that's what we've done. <clears throat> End of story. And it turns out I had no legal right to come back at them at all. Um, and... Um, and I sort of took a peek at what they'd done. It was horrible. They'd put like the cheesiest, cheesiest score on it. And I just, to me, the music was, has always been, you know, one of the most crucial things in the film um, process. And um, to me, they had, they had butchered something that they said I could do, and then they'd taken it off me and done what they wanted to do. And I was actually, I think I was more hurt by that half hour episode than by, at least when you, you know, go to war with a studio over a feature film, you kind of know what you're in for, you know. So um, I had, you know, as they say, revenge is best served cold. Some years later, when Leaving Las Vegas came out and then suddenly get, got nominated and everything, I actually got a letter from David Brown, the producer, saying, you'd be surprised to hear from me, um, but um, I saw your film and uh, I... I have to say I admire it immensely I love everything about it the acting is wonderful the directing I really love the music and I went right got you you bastard you know <laughs> so I wrote back and I said I'm so pleased to hear from you, David and you know, so gracious of you to write and blah 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 and uh, I'm particularly thrilled that you love the music and I wonder if you noticed it was the score you took off Mara <laughs> It's not the entire score, but that mm. trumpet stuff with the yeah. very minimal kind of you know keyboard and everything is is in Leaving Las Vegas. And funnily enough, I never heard back from him. You know. um, so, so you know, he's, it helped a little bit with the karma, you know. So anyway, um, I had my cutting copy, and um, I uh, you know sort of uh, when I was asked to do this I thought well it would be interesting to show you something that A hasn't been seen before ever yeah. by anybody uh, apart from me and the producer. And, um, and something from that period when I, you know, I was sort of 
in a way still starting to get it to grips with filmmaking mm. and you know it's um i was hoping to watch it but it was full um because i haven't seen it all the way through but i saw little bits of it and you know it's it's an early film of mine so you know so what you've just done was mr jones and before that you'd done i'd done Liebestraum, Liebestraum. um internal affairs yeah uh, stormy monday yeah that's about it and the ratigan one was that afterwards well after yeah yeah okay. yeah um. Because it's a kind of cause the music. It, it, I mean, it is it is quite challenging because it's a kind of tone poem. Because the, the, because the, the, there are, there in a way there are no cues. The whole thing is yeah. is, is that is that uh, mood and atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was always going to be based on getting a strong performance, which wasn't too difficult from Julia yeah. Bernard. She was extraordinary. Was yeah. Um, <clears throat> um, the ending is really. I, I remember being quite devastating. Her performance there. Um, I wanted also to do a little homage myself to um, <clears throat> you know one of my favourite soundtracks, which is Miles Davis's "Lift of oh, the Scaffold," yeah, yeah, yeah. which is basically just minimal trumpet and quite modal. Um, and I felt it's a soundtrack that changed not only the way people look at soundtracks, but also changed music. You know, this this year is the 50th anniversary of the album "Kind of Blue," yeah. Miles Davis, but actually. He did um, Lift of the Scaffold a little bit before that. And I think Lift of the Scaffold actually is a more significant album because it changed the way Miles Davis played also as a result of him working with a film. And that's something that people never really go into. Mm. You always think about how the other way around, how music changes this or whatever. But actually, I think the discipline of working with a film made Miles Davis think about music and what he was doing in a much simpler way because film music has to be simple. So I wanted that, ele- that to me, that element of... Paris and a kind of that sort of a French vibe you know was something I was really interested in in terms of not just the style of shooting it I used a French DP but also you know the uh, the sound of it because Miles Davis is a really interesting reference I was thinking about him earlier because there's a way in which I mean there are certain people who when they get to the point where everyone's shipping out kind of blue they have to make on the corner mm-hmm. um, or you know everyone's saying well this is fine and then they have a blue period yeah uh, and that, that, that isn't every artist but there's a way in which um, I mean what's interesting about your relationship with Hollywood and with the studios is that at points where you make things like I mean internal affairs you know is, is the beginning of a really successful Hollywood career in a way in, in a way um, <laughs> the, um, the beginning and the end but th- but then all the internal uh, all, all the internal affairs all the relationships annoy you to such a degree yeah. but it's not but in a way it's not it's it's your desire to revolutionise the form to say right what what if we did film cinema this way mm-hmm. and th- and they're they're not listening to you that's the problem it's not it's not that those moments aren't working mm-hmm. but you keep landing at them in a way because in a way after leaving Las Vegas there isn't and there aren't other kind of beat of the street very quick sixteen millimeter films and mm. you're you're sort of you're on the move again yeah I mean. I came out of performance art. I mean, I studied music first and then um, uh, then sort of fell, interestingly, coincidentally, into you know, be, playing music with a performance art group and then literally within a matter of weeks ending up you know, going on stage and being a performer. So I did 10 years with The People Show and then five years in my own company where I started to use mixed media and film and everything with live performance. 
but you know, there's 10, 15 years of experimental performance mm. gave me a kind of, you know, a habit, if you like, of, you know, move on, move on. This is interesting. We could do this. We could do that. How exciting to do this. How exciting to use film and live performance, same actors on stage and on film and mm. all of that. <clears throat> so, you know, I get into film and like everybody, we love film and we're turned on by and we make the mistake of thinking, oh, Goddard's fantastic and, you know, Kubrick's great and, you know, maybe, you know, like nine, 10, 11 directors you sort of like obsess over and you make the mistake of thinking well it film's so cool you know we don't realize it's 99.9 percent conservative and when mm. faced with the choice of doing something interesting a studio will you know just like Turn the throw the gear into you know fast reverse and go mm. oh no no let's do something really boring that we know five years ago made some money you know and that attitude i mean right now it's like it's it's unbelievable how banal what's yeah. coming out of studios is. You know, if it's not a kind of masturbatory sort of 18-year-old boy comedy uh, in 3D, I mean, you're fucked, you know? Yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, really. I mean, I haven't made a feature film with a studio since uh, 2003, um, and I've had such a good time, I can tell you, since then. But, you know, I'm sort of toying now and dipping my feet back and trying to get, um, you know, two films financed yeah. and one of the films I just I read the script and I thought well, it's so mainstream but it's quite good you know yeah. so why not you know at last a mainstream but quite well written script but apparently it's no it's it's uh, hyper experimental as far as they're concerned yeah because yeah. yeah. there's no teenage boys in very it cheaply, and, cheap and, dirty. You know, and no laughs you know people get but, killed and but stuff. are they like I mean they must be like the sort of the, the, there's a period of the French producers in the 80s where there was a competition to see what, who, who's going to make a Godard film because you know you're, you know, yeah. you're going to give again the great struggle and in a way there must be people saying okay well you know I, I can prove to you I'm going to make a, a, a kind of a figus in classic television movie which looks like maybe like, like all those other movies I mean the, the truth is I mean I've sort of stopped spending um, enough time thinking about it of yeah. late because there's so many other interesting things happening in yeah. film that are nothing to do with mainstream filmmaking. Yeah. Um, it occurs to me that one of your problems is when you talk about working in experimental theatre and so on is that you, you, you're just simply incapable of something which is a vice, which is you're incapable of thinking of the audience in a very abstract way. It's that thing over there, out there, there's this no, audience. No, no, no. And, and you're... you're um, but your relationship with the audience is, 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 is intimate in a way all the time, even if you're working on quite a big... Yeah, I mean, I always think that they're smart. Yeah. And also never had the ambition to conquer the world. So, I mean, you know, one of the problems with cinema is the idea that a successful film is one mm. that everyone likes, yeah. um, which I think is a kind of contradiction in terms in a way. It can't be that good if everyone likes it, surely, yeah. you know. Um, and realising, certainly, thank God for the internet and all of that, you know, that... I would say my two bits of advice now to filmmakers is, you know, work out who you think your audience is and then try and find them, you know. Um, and then once you've found them, mm. handcuff them in some <laughs> way, you know. I mean, make sure you stay in contact with them because, you know, now it's not so difficult to... to to find your audience, you know. The problem is, you know, where do you screen your pay. film? Yeah. How, do, how do you screen it and all that stuff? But I mean, you know, that's sort of organically sorting itself out now as well, I think, mm. you know. Because it's also interesting that you may be that step ahead, which creates all the difficulty. So in a way, I think time code is very interesting. For instance, 
what's interesting is the way you frame the drama and what's going on and the concerns that it has. But consistently, you end up having conversations with people in the industry who are saying, oh, well, you know, they treat it ex entirely as a formal experiment. Mm -hmm. Although it is that as well. So you're not actually allowed to have content while you're developing the form. Everyone sort of responds yeah. as though you're... Well, I mean, one of the things that really shocks me is that <clears throat> how not smart the industry is, you know, in terms of not in tune with technology, not in tune with the way people access technology, not in tune with how easy it is for the generation, which is not their generation, or mine particularly, but um, to, to understand a completely different language that uses visual information. And, and then the other real problem is this um, <clears throat> is a capitalistic problem, you know, and I don't mean to sort of go all Marxist on you, but... I do think that, you know, more and more, I think the issue comes down to just purely and simply uh, money, hedge funding type money, which is that the industry is based on employing as many people as possible and paying them as much as possible, mm. you know, same as the financial world. And everything that the new technology actually stands for is in fact the opposite of that, which is it's cheaper, it's easier, it doesn't need as many people and all that sort of stuff. And that... That's for them is revolutionary talk, you know, and they will resist that as much as possible. So, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, the buzzwords now are the red and 3D, right? Mm. And I, I'm so against both of those things, you mm. know. I'm sure the red is just a simply gorgeous camera, blah, blah, blah. But do we really need to see high definition? Mm. I mean, why, why do things have to be high, highly defined, you know? Mm. I mean, some of the most beautiful films we've ever seen are not highly defined. They're actually quite abstracted. I mean, they're not so sharp. They're not so clinically mm. accurate, you know. They're more poetic. And I, I always maintain that film is a poetic medium at its best, not mm. a representational, you know, uh, thing. So, you know, this worship of the, of the perfect, of the perfect mm. ability to reproduce, to me, is a real red herring. And it gets in the way of the creative process. And it also plays right into the hands of a capitalistic idea of what the film industry is, which is an industry that is out to gamble and make money, mm. and make a lot of money, mm. you know. And it doesn't suit them. I mean, I once went into a meeting about 10 years ago in a studio pitching for a film, and I said, you know, what's the budget? And they said, 25 million. And I went... Wow, you know, and they went not enough, and I went. I was thinking more like five, you know. I mean, it's contemporary. It's a bunch of you know contemporary ordinary people in contemporary dress. Nothing happens. There are no big explosions. What's the money for? And there was a sort of look around the room, like who's going to talk to him? And they went, Mike, the budget's okay. We don't need to discuss it, okay? Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no sorry. one has ever Great asked budget, for less. You know, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so my fee will be huge as well, will it? Yeah. You know, so, um, and there is that kind of, you know, just shut up. You know, don't, yeah. don't be rocking the boat all the time like that, you know. Yeah. But my sensibility is like, well, you know, what could you make the film for? And then from their point of view, then you could have more profit, you know. But it's the upfront money that's the most important thing for most of the people in the, in the industry. They really don't care what happens to it afterwards. But it's that atmosphere of the kind of military level of preparation that people get into in order to make a bigger film. Yeah. Um, which, uh, oddly, I mean, they're, they're, I always think there must be a middle way because you've written a book about digital filmmaking, which 
I strongly recommend. It's just if you go and see, is it Teach Yourself or it's one of those series? It's a very no. It's just called How to Make a Digital. F- but it's very of, simple. It's yeah. the recycled paper. It's at the bottom of the shelf, and then you see that it's actually Mike Figgis' manifesto rather than a how-to book. So it's very interesting. I um, just wanted to make a book that actually, well, because when I started making films, every time I asked a question of someone in the film industry, like how do you do this, they would kind of go, "That's for me to know, <laughs> and you to find out, Sonny." You know, and I thought that's kind of fucked up. Why don't you just pass? it on you know so I've written a book where I actually every stage of the filmmaking process I've just broken it down and said this is how I did it you know and this is how I saved a lot of money and you don't need to do this and you don't need time code and you don't need blah 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 you know you don't necessarily need a steady cam and and if this happens with the actors don't do this and stuff like that you know when to back off and stuff like that so you know i mm. thought i'll write a very like a pocket book of full of practical information um, so that's what i did but there's a kind of interesting context now because of the changeover in technologies we're always dealing even in a film school context you deal with the myth that you know if you're working on a digital format that you don't really need to do uh, you know to have uh, to you know to have proper lighting or to you know sort out the costumes or whatever because somehow the film's making itself where it moved mm. into some other technological area um, without preparation. When we had Abbas Kerastami teaching here a year and a half ago, we had this interesting conversation where uh, I was asking him about, you know, the future of it working in a digital way, and he was saying, well, actually, after making 10, he decided he wasn't going to work with any celluloid at all. Mm-hmm. But then he spent the year looking at lots of other trying to get excited by lots of other digital work and saying, well, actually, there isn't that much that's that exciting. And a lot of people getting caught in the problem of trying to deal with celluloid and all the complexity seems to be in some way tied up with their moment of, of creativity. So they're somewhere in the middle between mm-hmm. you know, military preparation and just shoot it, which was the place he was... Yeah, uh, I mean, looking for. you know, light, light is a problem, you know, because, uh, you know, it's, you could say that cinema is, is based on a relationship with light or the absence of light. So you can either fake the light, you know, which is like, you know, takes time and, and electricity and extra people. Or like the great photographers, like, let's say, Cartier-Bresson and that school of, you know, sort of, um, you know, walk around with a Leica with a 35mm lens and and get brilliant photographs so, but the brilliant photographs are a result of an understanding of light so you know w- one can bypass electricity and you know the traditional means of making a film but then you almost in a way need to start studying light mm-hmm. in, a, in a much more specific way you need to understand and it's interesting so I'm a photographer too and I've recently got into a lot of conversations with people and who've just been really honest and said can you teach me how to take that's a really great photograph can you how did you do that and I said well you know it's very simple it's just one light and it's a question of getting it's actually a question of looking at the person in a very concentrated way and making sure the light is working and learning the relationship between the, the way your eye looks at the light and the way any camera will read that you know and of course the great thing about digital photography is you can do a test and go wow, that looks great, you know. And if I close it down another stop, that's going to look great. So, you know, I'm a big fan of those kind of, like, very basic um, uh, approaches to the aesthetic. Um, I firmly believe you don't need anything. You could, you know, I just bought the new iPod um, camera, (laughs) video camera. I was in New York and, you know, and, you know, it's this big and it's, it's... the coolest thing I've ever seen, you know. It shoots widescreen, it's like you put it in your pocket. Um, and, you know, you can steal footage on that so well, you know. Um, and I, I you mean I mean, in the cinema, yeah. 
anywhere. Yeah. Um, I don't know about this. Yeah, why not? Yeah. You know. <laughs> It's just brilliant. I mean, the idea, you know, when you go back to Jean-Luc Godard saying to Arton, I want you to design a, yeah. a camera th that will go in my glove compartment. And this goes in your pocket, you know, yeah. not even, and there's room for other stuff, fags and everything, you know, it's just not just the camera. Um, and I just, it's, to me, that is science fiction. Yeah. I mean, I look, I look at what's out there now, you know, and some of the, I'm not a huge fan of camera phone, like mm. relationships, but, you know, I've looked at some and, some of the ca the uh, the video cameras on them is there, you know. And the other thing is, I've become like everybody obsessed with YouTube, and you know, and I'm seeing such amazing footage, yeah. which is very low res. But I've got to the point where I really don't care if it's low res or high res. I really don't care. And realizing that there's this Im immense library of pretty much un catalogued I mean it's quite hard to find stuff you know you've really got to be yeah, persistent yeah. haven't you you can't just type in I want this you have to go on a journey and go through a few porn sites before you'll get to what you want but it's always porn that gets in the way but um, like the film industry actually and uh, but I mean I'm you know there is suddenly like the collective unconscious is all there with several millions and millions of clips of things all very pixelated and I, I found some of them so beautiful to look yeah. at I have to say, so going back to my argument about, you know, screw high res, I really think that's yeah. a, it's a red herring, and uh, the red. Because in, in a way, there is a kind of a community, which is, a, which is a kind of virtual community, really, because it's a global community, yeah. people that you're working with in terms of what, the, what, what your practice leads to. So there's the book, but there's also the fig rig, so you, you're inventing gripping equipment, which is being used by other people. Mm. But in terms of looking at the work that's coming out, okay, you're looking at YouTube and so on. Do you, do you do you feel that there's, you know, there are a lot of people who are who are working in if this is a kind of a, a school like a school of painters or whatever, people who are who are doing this stuff. Do you think that there are new forms emerging and there are there are, there are people you're going around the world promoting, saying mm. they're discovering interesting things in this, in the in 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 the form I, of I, digital experimental yeah, filmmaking? I have a feeling that. It's not definable right now, but I have the feeling that everything is changing so radically that the way we will look at, in years to come, the way we will look at what we call art, let's include you know, cinema in that, will have just, it will no longer apply in that way. That idea of the elitist single, you know, go here to see the pinnacle of someone's achievement kind mm -hmm. of thing, because there's too much choice. I remember like about 10 years ago doing a conference in LA and it was Steven Soderbergh and myself and some other people talking about the future of digital and what's amazing is how much has changed beyond every, anybody's mm. expectation in that time and, and say so asked Steven Soderbergh and he said well I think there'll just be 10 times as many bad films around as there are now mm -hmm. and I went well uh, therefore <laughs> by definition 10 times as many good ones too right you know and he was really like, miserable about it and um, but I mean that's you know, it's, the genie came out of the bottle, not with a pop, but with a, like an atomic explosion. I mean, you know, the speed with which YouTube has grown and the speed with which the internet has blossomed in a way. Mm. As I say, it's not at the moment definable to me. It's like thinking about, you know, infinity. Um, and you can't really get your head around it because the beginning and the end is not definable in it anymore. So the whole concept of what is cinema and how we treat visual imagery. And I think for you chaps, it, I'd be interested to hear what you think in terms of, because you know, you've come here to, to have a concentrated moment of education and experience and with a, 
built into that is the idea of an aspirational idea that you'll come out and do a specific kind of thing at the end of it, right? And I wonder if, if, if your attitude to what that thing is at, at the end is different from, let's say, a contemporary of yours 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I mean, has anyone got a feeling about that? Do you think you're the same beast as a student was 15 years ago? All right. Yeah, I think my views change from the beginning of January when I entered the school, I think, learning about the possibilities with digital filmmaking, anything is possible on a, on a global scale, scale. I could go to Africa with a camera and make a film, which excites me. And I didn't realize that even before I came to film school. I thought there were rules. Mm -hmm. and you had to work in, a, in, in this fabric of rules. And I'm realizing you don't have to. Well, I mean, to a show of hands, who here <clears throat> aspires to work, let's say, within the mainstream of, let's say, let's say a studio system, uh, you know? What's well, not? That's what about fifteen percent. Yeah, yeah. it's not that many people. But then this school is very particular. So you come to <laughs> the only thing that's constituted as an international school in its being. We don't allow more than twenty-five percent UK students. We try and recruit from every corner of the globe as yeah. much as we can aggressively. Only graduate students, and then we're also looking for um, uh, people with you know irreverent and explosive imaginations. So 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 that's r roughly where you're you're getting that. But I'm quite sure that 10 years ago you get more people who would think that success would be about a 95-minute feature film playing in mm -hmm. uh, a cinema in a number of countries and so on. And I think that people's sense of how they can express themselves and earn a living and connect with the audience must be very different from that. Well, I mean, that, you know, that 15, 20 years ago, that would be the only logical outlet, wouldn't it? Uh, that's where you'd hope to end up because, to be honest, it was either that or the telly, right? Um, <clears throat> whereas now, I mean, for example, the whole idea of, of what, how long is a film? You know, I've always thought this idea of 19 minutes and a three-act structure was one of the daftest things I'd ever come across when I got into cinema. I was like, who, who decided this? Then you realize, of course, the distributors decided that because they need to feel that the customer, once sat down, is getting their money's worth, you know, and anything below 90 minutes is not really their money's worth. And how many really interesting films were ruined by having to be a little bit longer than they needed to be, you know? And that sort of groaning last 10 minutes, you know, where you kind of, you know, you're being wound up towards the end and all the rest of it. Whereas often a film should just stop and kind of and leave you a little bit shocked, you know. But this, because of the whole distribution thing and, and, and the, the idea that the cinema is the logical venue for where we should show our stuff. And maybe it's more like now, like a gallery would be, that you paint, you know, and you'll do a show once in a while and put all your pictures together and stick them up on the wall and people write bad things or nice things about it and then but you carry on painting you know shouldn't stop you do you take um mm. questions or yeah should we take some questions yeah. we can go back to mm. the film if you like let's take some questions <laughs> yeah uh, i'd like uh, your opinion more about uh, the red one movement because uh, you said that there is a certain community that is evolving and I found uh, this community quite energizing because there are a lot of people from all different kinds of countries and styles coming up from the father who is filming his children in 4k up to people who are shooting feature films with it in New York and there seems to be quite a unique 
thing, like a unique red school coming out of that. And I was wondering, because you are not so convinced of that, what do you think of these possibilities that might, that might come, come out of this movement, if you can call it a movement? The red movement? Yes. I, I didn't know it was a movement, but I mean, I, I'm sure it is, you know. I'm so deeply suspicious of it for the following reason, which is that I feel it's part of a kind of um, subconscious conspiracy to keep it techie, you know. I mean, you know, there's such amazing cameras now on the market that are more or less automatic, you know, or you can override them. But actually, let's put it this way, they take good pictures of a high enough um, definition, let's say that 20 years ago would have been thought of as like astoundingly good by video standards, you know, these, that's what was high definition for television. Now it's a, almost a disposable camera, that, you know, that, that, you know, you take on your holidays and stick in your handbag or whatever. So, you know, humanity has an ongoing obsession with technical perfection and the ability to technically record the mirror image of humanity. So painters did that until still photography came along. And, you know, the minute still photography came along at a cheap enough price, I mean, you couldn't see painters for dust as they went, fuck, we're liberated, you know. Let's do pointillism, let's do impressionism, let's do abstract this, let's do conceptual art. You know, they, they couldn't wait to get away from representational portraiture, you know. And, you know, let's face it, it, it had become like photorealism just prior to cameras coming along, you know. And you realize that this is a bad habit that we have, human beings. We constantly want to paint ourselves and make it, wow, that really, that's a great painting. That really looks like my Uncle Bill. You know, <laughs> does that make it a great painting? You know, But isn't, isn't, isn't there a moment which, I mean, I, I, this is a confessional moment, because when you get to the red one and you get to the 24P Sony system and so on, and it's progressive scanning, and you've got certain qualities which you associate with 35mm cinematography in terms of color saturation, Mm -hmm. and the number of light sources that can be represented in one frame and the question of whether there's any any buzz or any scanning and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. When you get to that point, um, a lot of people who are involved with a 35mm cinematic graphic image as a specific thing aesthetically and who otherwise would say, all right, well, it's interesting to watch a Goddard video because it's strobing and being a video, but that's very specific. Mm -hmm. And this is very specific. They're saying, oh, I can get that for cheap now yeah, yeah. Um, because I Relatively. don't have to go out and buy all that 35mm stock. And no one will ever know whether it was on on digital or not. And but in a way, that that's a step change because, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, sometimes we screen a film in here and then, uh, uh, you know, admittedly, it's not the most expensive projector in the world, but then, you know, somebody even close to the camera department will say, what was this shot on? And they and the answer might be red or it might be 16 you know yeah yeah no i get it and i'm i know i'm guilty of that love of you know, i take still photographs so i use a hasselblad digital i mean you can see every blackhead every <laughs> and i find i you know in photoshop i blur you know just like knock it out of focus a little bit it's just too painful you know um yeah. And then I found really what I really like is to blur it even more, blur it even more. And, and the more low res it is, the more interesting it becomes, the more pregnant it becomes as an image because you don't really know. Here's another thing I've noticed, right? And this is like a cross-pollinating problem. Cinema is now 100 and something years old, right? It's really tired, the industry, you know. It's lost its I'm a virgin and I'm really interesting kind of moment, you know. So it's kind of, it's been around a bit too long wearing the same clothes, you know. And the kids haven't really been given a chance. So it's like, it's a bit like Hollywood actors in a way. And they're too old, the guys anyway, you know. And 
technology has you know had this little you know chain massive change not little change i find now when i watch a film there's this feeling of like absolute boredom sets in quite early on as i watch the fakery that's mm. going on on you know and the reason for this is i've just watched too many interesting real clips of things you know, shot on telephones, shot on toilet paper, shot on God knows what. Mm. And where st the, what's happening on the screen is so fucking interesting that I don't care. So when I see something so perfectly shot, so horribly perfectly lit and backlit and frontlit and yeah. sidelit and color corrected and yeah. tweaked, you know, um, but I'm still looking at, you know, Angelina Jolie or whoever, you know, mm. and I think, you know, this is just a bunch of fakery, you know. I'm not getting anything from this because it's just faking it all the way through and the clearer the camera is the more fakey it looks mm. the worse isn't, the set isn't, looks isn't that the bigger question of a lack of ambition because if i look i get my bafta dvds and then i put in the middle of them a film you know a new film from south korea or a chinese movie sure. or something from and you don't know uh, the actors uh, you know and, and i well not just that i don't know the actors that that the the director's deeply ambitious to tell a story with some purpose um, uh, you know, and I've just watched kind of Chicago, the musical or something. There's an incredible sense of the whole of a whole of Anglo-Saxon culture being completely redundant and yeah, just yeah. being at the end of I a agree. pier. I agree. Which is not really technological. It's sort of it's kind of cultural specific about whether cinema matters in one country or another one. I don't know whether you. I mean, you know, I uh, I, I caught up the other day with. Um, Harmony Corrine's film, you know, Julian Donkey yeah, Boy. Yeah. And that seems like a wonderful example of, like, the most brilliant cinematography on the lowest possible low-res kind of camera and, you know, available lighting all the rest of it. It just looks stunning. It's very, very soft, and a lot of it's out of focus on yeah. purpose and all the rest of it. So it's kind of very deliberate aesthetic use of, of low-end camera technique. I don't know. I, I, just, I just think this... That the, going back to your question, the red, it's still a kind of like a techie camera. It requires assistance. It's quite a male camera still. And, you know, that, that's another thing that's really kind of I find disappointing is that cinema has for so long been a male, physically male dominated, um, you know, in terms of heavy stuff that big, big chunky guys carry and, you know just all those big chunky guys on a film set and all the rest of it, you know, I mean, that one of the great things about cameras getting lighter and smaller and easier to, you know, easier to carry around was it kind of gender-wise seemed a, a little bit more interesting, you know. Mm. So the red, the red's quite butch still, I think, you know, for me. Uh, and go on, do you want to? You just said you were uh, making, you are working with the Hasselblad that is digital, yeah. and then you are ba basically Knocking bored it down. by all this pre precision, and then you go and, and blur it. Yeah. But would you have come to this conclusion if you have shot everything like in YouTube? Because you know you are saying that that you don't need high high res, but on the other hand, you are shooting 35 or you were shooting 35, and you are sh shooting mid-size format on the probably the most expensive bag that is out there, yep. only to find out that you don't need it and then go back. No, sometimes I don't so need it. Sometimes I, I sometimes it works fine, and um, for me, because I don't haven't really worked that way before, it's kind of a thrill to actually to see everything in focus, <laughs> and uh, that's kind of definition for a certain kind of image. You know, um, yeah, certain kind of image. It works really, really well. But in, yeah, I mean, there are 
I, I admit there are contradictions. I just have a kind of wariness of technology coming back and, and seizing, you know, the, the grid position again when it was doing a good job of losing it for the last couple of years, you know. But it's, it's an interesting sort of move there into a, into a question about whether, you know, I suppose, you know, comparison with an actor would be Nicolas Cage. I mean, you're staying alert and alive by moving between two... Uh, sort of more or less difficult moving objects mm -hmm. because your your way of working in the Hollywood system um, um, has created some wonderful work and it really interrogates what's going on there so it, you know I'm thinking of you know so if you if you you decide to cast Richard Gere in that role in internal affairs in some ways it, it's a commentary on an understanding of everything that the audience knows and doesn't know about Richard Gere, and it, so it's completely engaged with that system, which is why it works so mm -hmm. so completely. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I, I, I was at my happiest on leaving Las Vegas because I shot it on Super 16, and you know, I found it to be perfectly good enough for a mm. big, a huge screen, yeah. like you know, massive screen. At that point, you know, because it gets there's a softness there and a kind of. Um, a sort of grain quality, which is so filmic. And I, I mean, mm. let's be absolutely clear, I love film. I really, really adore film. Um, and I particularly love Super 16. And particularly since, you know, Kodak sort of finally, you know, made the resolution better and all the rest of it. So, and you can combine it with 35 and, mm. you know, as a lot of people have now. So, you know, I would definitely choose to shoot my next feature on, on Super 16. I, made, mm. I, I own a Super 16 camera and, you know, damn it, I want to get it out of the mm. case again. You know, it's really, it's a, such a lovely thing. Um, and it is just, a, you know, it's a, to me a perfect size for a camera. Uh, obviously, it's quite big compared to most video cameras now. But I mean, I do love the quality of, and I would fight for the survival of film, you know, as well. And I, you know, I don't, you know, it's, both things should be available. But, you know, the films that I'm, I'm talking at the moment about trying to raise money for, you know, the minute I sort of say, yeah, we should shoot it on Super 16, they kind of go, oh, no, no, we should it on 35. We'll get you the extra money. <laughs> and I'm saying, no, I don't, it's not about the money. I don't want more yeah. money. I want to shoot it on Super 16. Yeah. I think I'll get better performances from the actors if I use 16 millimeter because it's a different vibe. And it's not so clinical and you can, you can be much more like video with it, you know. And I guess the final point is the thing I love about the small cameras and all of that is you get a better result. Okay, so to me, the most important thing is what's the end result? Do you, what's the best way of getting a performance out of an actor? Uh, I'll put it the other way. What's the worst way of getting a performance out of an actor? 35 millimeter, you know, because you give them too much time to think about it and there's too much emphasis on the technical and there are too many guys around. Second thing is the red, I still think, is a bit too tech heavy. So I would still go for a camera like the Sony, which is, again, you know, can be a sort of self-operated kind of deal. You don't need anybody else to help you with. I'm also talking out of my ass because I've never used the red, and I do hear it's great. <laughs> and is, is it as user-friendly as people say? I, I've also heard from a lot of DPs that they had a lot of problem with it. Do you, do you use the red here? We have done. We run workshops in the graduation term yeah. um, regularly on red. Hands up who loves the red and sees that as the future. One, two, three. Okay, four, five. Okay, no, but the red isn't like, it's like mm. the buzzword, isn't it? It's yeah, like, that's the best. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. the best the camera ever. It's the buzzword. Right. <clears throat> All right. Okay. Another question. Another question. I don't know. We are talking about materials and we are talking about something that 
may or may not control us here. Um, do you think, do you think, as an artist, do you think like an existence of a material should like, you know, um, do, do, do you think it's, it ha because you, you, sa you said you did not try the red. Mm -hmm. You did not, is it because you did not try the red? You're saying what you're saying or because, because you just saw the result and you, um, you decided that you don't want to use the red. Yeah, I mean, because you know. the thing is, the thing is to me, you know, the art, the art comes from the trying and from the, you know, I'm not, I'm not really restricted to a tool. Mm. The tool, I have control over it because I'm a human who created it and as creating everything else. So I don't know, it's, it's, you are giving your, don't you think you are giving yourself restriction that may create something, may Maybe. stop an opportunity mm -hmm. or, I don't know. I'm sure I'll end up using it <laughs> at some point because a DP will go, Mike, you've got to try it. It's not, you just try it, mate, you know, and they always do. And I, I, I'm very open to that. If a DP loves it and he's got one and he wants to rent it to the production, haha, you know, <laughs> I'll go for it, you know, because everyone's got to make a living too. And I'm sure the results will be great. For me personally, I just know that it's not, it doesn't represent um, something that floats my boat immediately, like, you know, like a much smaller camera would, you know, or, and I'm happy with 16, you know. I don't care about the image quality that much, you see, as long as it's beautiful, and I know a couple of routes to beauty, so, and the stuff I've seen on the red isn't spectacularly differently beautiful to anything else I've seen, it's just another camera. It's just another camera. See, what I'm, what I'm afraid of is that you're saying something that what, what an artist in the 18th century or, you know, when they created the camera, would say about the camera instead of his canvas. I mm. just don't want to... No, I, know, don't, I don't think I am saying extent. that. Just, I know, think I'm being a, a bit I'm, more... I'm really worried about, about you and I'm worried about, oh, about I'm the interest of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> about the interest of You're cinema. You're worried that you're going to go off and be techie, aren't <laughs> yeah. you? You're telling, we're, we're telling us we're having a techie conversation. I'm sure yeah. that's yeah. reasonably true. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to change the subject from Good. the camera and ask you about, uh, if you can tell us something about uh, how did you approach writing the script for time code? Time code. Was it like a, you know, yeah. four-column script? Or? No, it's um, actually in the CD that I've brought. In the middle, there's a, there's a copy of the script, of um, one page of it. I wrote the script as a piece of music on uh, music paper. Um, uh, like a conductor's score, so I, I sellotaped together maybe eight different pieces of mus uh, music paper, and I made four left-to-right columns, tracks basically, and uh, imagine it more like a string quartet. So the first stave was camera one, camera two, camera three, camera four, and then the bar lines represented each bar line represented one minute of screen time. So I was able to write the script in a completely linear way, and I wrote. Um, you know, let's say the violin part first, leaving plenty of gaps for, let us say, harmony, counterpoint, whatever. So I knew, okay, you know, whatever's happening on this screen is not that important, so those actors should just do something interestingly boring at that point, because <laughs> camera two is going to... So I wrote, if you like, a kind of dynamic map, and I started with, a, let's say, a completely bullshit story, you know, which would have violence, sex, movement, car travel, you know, um, confrontation, whatever, all the things that, you know, that are a reasonably good idea for a menu for a film. Um, and I ended with a death, you know, um, and I had some sex in the middle. And um, <clears throat> so I kind of 
placed my events and then I, of the 30 characters that existed, I put them into groups and then I started to choreograph who would cross over from one camera to another. And then that became, if you like, the map for both the camera, four cameras and for the, uh, for the actors. And on day one of, well, let's say, rehearsal, though we didn't rehearse, of chat with the actors, I gave everybody a copy of the music um, in pencil and a, a rubber and a pencil. And I, and I taught them the system, which they learned very, very quickly. I gave everyone a watch, a digital watch, that could be synchronized at zero um, because it's a one-hour film, 90-minute, 93-minute film, which was the length of tape I had. That's what governed the length of the film. And, um, and then we just went through, you know, painstakingly explaining the choreography of movement, um, knowing that the first outing of this, the, the first time we shot this, because by definition you have to shoot the entire film each time, that it would be a disaster. But I said, okay, we'll shoot the film on whatever it is, Monday morning at 11 o'clock. By definition, we will have wrapped by 9, 11 o'clock, by 12.35. Um, we'll have some lunch, and in that time, the technicians will synchronize the four screens, um, and then we'll come back and watch it on four monitors simultaneously. I'll do a live mix, put in some film music at the same time to give you a sense of the you know, uh, what the music's going to be doing in this too. And then we'll discuss it. <laughs> and, uh, and then version one was the most, you know, exquisite disaster. I mean, of like cameramen filming each other and actors like panicking and looking at their watch going, where the fuck am I supposed to You know, there were clocks everywhere, you know, people just getting so fucked up, you know, with their timings and then realizing that everything I'd said was you have to learn the script as a 90-minute dance. You have to know where you are. It doesn't really matter if you don't know who you are. You just have to know where you are, you know. Just turn up at the right time. Did you change the script from the point of view of the narrative after that, yeah, after yeah. that lunch hour? Well, because what was interesting was, as an organic process, was that the, the sense of achievement of getting through the first day, because we did, we got to the end, you know, and things more or less happened, although it, it was full of complete screw-ups, you know. But then, as you then adjust the technical aspects on day two, you then also start working on, you know, that was really good what you were doing on camera two there, you know. That's a very interesting little thing you've got going there, which everybody could hear, mm. because you're playing it back each time. And so the story then started, the improvisation started to develop in the most unanticipated organic way, which was this, which is, I realized quite by accident, this was the first time in the history of cinema that actors had performed in a film and seen it the same day oh. and seen what their context was and even though it's on four screens they knew that while they were doing this Salma Hayek was doing this, Skellen Skarsgård was doing this, Saffron Burroughs was doing this so they started to have a virtual sense of not only the real space they were in but the simultaneous three spaces that were going on at the same time and they started to act based on their memory from the day before of what was simultaneously happening and also the music that was being played, whether it was Mahler or Jimi Hendrix or whatever, <laughs> that was giving them, you know, as it were, a specific vibe. And it was like magic. I, I, I can't tell you how amazing it was because they all got into it to such an extent. And, of course, the camera people, myself being one of them, also had to learn amazing choreography to avoid, sometimes there's two or three cameras in the same space, and you have to work out 
moves that specifically allow you to bypass a camera by finding something really interesting on the floor. But then you had to motivate that by getting an actor to do something interesting on the floor so you could get past camera B. So this process on a like intense two-week process, and in the last week, because the studio pulled the plug, we were shooting the film twice a day, you know, so doing two full-length features a day, <clears throat> and each time talking about it in between. And they were like, and the actors were driving themselves to work, and, you know, I said, here are the rules. By the way, Steven Soderbergh totally stole this on his next film, um, which were, you drive yourself to work, you wear your own clothes, you feed yourself and you do your own makeup, you know, that's the deal. And everyone gets the same wages. So the person that you've never heard of gets the same as Salma Hayek or Stellan or whatever. And that, you know, it created such a kind of, in a way, again, for Hollywood, unique, that they, they were just really mm. pleased to be kind of driving themselves and doing their own shit, you know. So this, you know, intense concentration. Why did the studio pull the plug? Because you'd said you'd do it in two weeks and you were in No, because uh, John Kelly asked to see the dailies. <laughs> <laughs> so we gave him, a v you know, on VHS, a transfer, a rough transfer, a four-screen transfer yeah. of what we'd done thus far. And, you know, by the end of week one, you know, we were in the middle of a intensely experimental film <laughs> process, you know, which made yeah. absolutely... And so he sent me a note saying... Um, I hope you know what you're doing because clearly no one else has got a fucking clue. We're pulling the plug on Friday, you know. So, okay. That gave honest. us a deadline. There's <laughs> <laughs> no fucking around. Yeah. And in fact, until the last two days, there was no ending and there was, you know, those issues of, like, narrative hadn't been resolved yeah. at all, you know. So uh, it's just very interesting that if you, if, you, if you take a different approach... You can solve all the traditional problems in a different way. It doesn't have to be by studio committee. They haven't got a clue how to write scripts. But actually, filmmakers do. Mm. And actors working together do. You know, And your job as a director becomes very, very different, which is to sort of make sure everybody's feeling appropriately good at the right time and that, you know, now we must move on and listen, look at... You know, it was great. You'd get the music out and all the actors would have their music out and their rubbers <laughs> and then go... Go to bar 63. And they're going to jump bar 63. Yep, got it. I said, okay, Salma is doing a really cool thing there. So is this actor and so is that actor. It's a bit of a clusterfuck. So, you know, actor B, you need to go like maybe one minute or even 45 seconds earlier with that line. You know, like rubber. Okay, come on. Bar 63. And actor C, if you just went 20 seconds later, then it would go ding, dong, ding, and you'd all be heard because I'm going to have to make a choice in the sound yeah. mix later yeah. on about who I'm featuring. And if you're all talking at the same time, someone has to lose, you know. So, um, <clears throat> you know, that, that process was... I mean, something I'd love, love, love to do again um, yeah. on a, you know on another project and be great it's great for any genre the thriller it would be fantastic yeah. for you know but when you turn up in i mean because you did some sopranos didn't you yeah when you turn up in that context having in way invented your working methods in such a complete way much more than most filmmakers um and then they say right now we're going to have you know you'll get half a day for rehearsal and then we're going to do this and mm -hmm. this writer will come they'll be on hand in case you want to mess about we're expecting mm -hmm. 15 setups a day here's your dop you never met him before mm -hmm. start tomorrow morning do you feel the kind of sense of um uh, of, of something cataclysmic you're going back again to no. a very classical no i did when i did Creek manor which was the last feature i did and i'd done hotel which was you know mm. radically more experimental yeah. than um 
then Time Code, and then my next film was, you know, Cold Creek Manor with Sharon Stone. And, you know, in the middle of day one, I just thought, what the fuck am I doing here? You know, it's like 500 trucks and all these crew, and they're destroying the set, and Sharon Stone refuses to come out of her dressing room, and, you know, uh, you know Dennis Quaid's got a suntan, and, you know, <laughs> you know and we can't photograph him because he's had, he's had an eye operation as well, you know, and it's like, can't do close-ups, and it's like... This is wacky, you know. This is like this really was. But The Sopranos, I was a huge fan of, and I yeah. went in going, I, "This is going to be an education for me because it's television, and they know exactly what they want. They don't have a problem with the script, and they'll kill you if you fuck with it." Yeah. Um, yeah. So I actually rang up um, um, someone who directed a couple of episodes, and I went, "Can I just ask a question?" They all know their characters. I've read the script. I don't understand any of it, you know, because it's halfway through season five, and I don't know. I have no idea what's happened. So what's my job? Yeah, yeah what's my job? And yeah. he said, it's really cool, Mike. It's, it's just directing the actors with their acting. And he said, they, they need directing, you know, because they're tired and they're fucked up. You know, they've, they've been doing this for too long. They just want to be directed. But you don't have to worry about anything else. The lighting's done and, you know, the script is a work of art. And, you know, so it was, it was great. And, I, and then they sort of they said to me, you know, this is TV, Mike. And, you know, it's going to be a shock for you because we're really fast. And I went, I'm fast. And they went, you think you're fast, but you're going to get a shock. And I went, we'll see. And so... Uh, and how many minutes a day did you get in the can? So we, you know, we got to some roadhouse or something. And I, I said so to the first AD, so what time do you think we're going to get out of here? And he said two in the morning I went really <laughs> wow and I looked at the script and it's like a bit of dialogue you know it's like so I got them out at 11.30 you know right. and then you know, became for two days the teamster's yes, best hero. friend you know but you know because to me they were still immensely slow you know and like hanging about you know and I loved it I have to say I lo you know the experience was great I, they, I was treated really badly and um, <clears throat> You know, put in my place. You yeah. realize you are director for hire. Yeah. On the last day, we were shooting in Little Italy, and I, I wore a really cool suit, and I was like, I'm shooting The Sopranos in Little Italy. It's just like, <laughs> this is so cool, you know, because the rest of the time you're in really grungy sets and everything. So I go on the set, and, you know, somebody says, you should go around the corner to Alfredo's and get a cappuccino and a pastry. It's the best in New York. And I went, I'll do that. And I went to get it. I came back on the set with my cappuccino and my pastry. And this very young PA came up to me and went, excuse me, so we're shooting. And I, <laughs> <laughs> and I went, yes, I know. I'm, she said, I know, an extra over there. <laughs> and then I saw the first assistant kind of going, he'd been watching this and he, I, he was obviously talking to him. He's going, that was the director. <laughs> she said, <laughs> I was like, that's exactly what it was like, you know. And literally on the last day, the next director was already in, kind of schmoozing with the with the actors, and, and you were done, you know. But and they hated me by the last day anyway, because I told them all to shut up on the set, you know, because there was so much noise and confusion, and I, and I if I forgot, I mean, if that had been a film that I was shooting, at that point I would have gone down the big whistle and gone and go, shut the fuck up! And I did it on the Soprano set. It was like, and there was this awful moment of like quietness. I heard people say, what did he say? <laughs> he said, shut the fuck up. <laughs> wow. And then two days later, I was kind of, I said to the sound guy, I, no one seems to be speaking to me. And he said, no, no, you, you tell them to shut up. They, they fucking hate you now, you know. <clears throat> so I was never asked back, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. And we've got a couple more questions. It's very hot in here. We're going to have a, we'll have a drink together in a minute. I, I, 
anything about Mara, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah because the film is about the story happening between a guy and a prostitute. Mm -hmm. You think there's a, something special about prostitutes or their life to write about or to make a film about? Uh, I think there's something special about extreme characters, period. And, and I guess, to me, the best stories are always about fuck-ups, like alcoholics, <laughs> manic depressives, <laughs> um, you know, incestuous yeah. parents. Um, uh, prostitutes, you know, um, and, and it, it was a story that was offered to me, uh, uh, one of four, um, and um, uh, I like I like those particular stories by Henry Miller, and I thought that it it was because it was a short story, it was perfect for film. And there's something very simple about it, and there were two very clearly defined characters, particularly hers. And if I find a good role for um, a woman, it's always it's a it's quite difficult because tends to not be written and um, something for an actress to get her teeth into so it, it was a that's what appealed to me about it uh, yeah I think cinema does gravitate towards fuck-ups you know I think you know I've always liked all my favorite films are about about pretty fucked up people yeah good question about this film. Um, the shot when they're in the back of the taxi, I noticed it was framed quite interestingly, like the top of their heads were almost at the top of the frame, like cut off. So I wonder why you chose that particular... That may be, <laughs> may be how you something I did on the Mac yesterday. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to make it look really cool. Because <laughs> it was actually shot, you know, TV. <clears throat> so I apologise for the interesting framing. As I say, I haven't had a chance. <laughs> you know, you just went, I've got to get this ready for tomorrow. So I was like, oh, I'll crop it a little bit and um, that looks better. You know, <clears throat> I mean, interestingly enough, because, you know, they took the film away from me. And of course, the first thing they did was to take everything out of the, uh, out of the uh, cutting room. Um, but as I was tidying up my um, my new studio, I, I threw away literally thousands of tapes last year of all the dailies from every film, pretty much. But I kept the tapes of the dailies from this film. And I suddenly realized a couple of days ago, wow, they're on pneumatic. And actually, they, they still look quite good. So actually, I could, comp and I will, completely recut the film, mm. thanks to the technology that wasn't available then, you know. Um, then what can I do with it? Nothing, you know, <laughs> except it's get not sued. Yours. It's not mine. Yeah. There's another one there, there was. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the framing throughout felt like it was um, very close. Yeah. And uh, I was, I, um, it looked fantastic. Um, but I was wondering if, if, if that also was because you were shooting on sort of relocations a lot and that, that was a way of controlling that or if it was... Uh, an aesthetic choice to be very close all the time. I mean, I, it felt like it. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure it was. But. I mean, Todd, I, I can't really remember. I would guess the following, which is that I, I edited it, and you know, it was that was partly out of like I couldn't wait to get into an editing room um, and start editing because you know I started making films and I kept thinking editing looks so cool. You know, I really want to kind of. <laughs> cut the film and kind of you know and I I was so frustrated always sitting next to an editor kind of going maybe if we just went you know took a you know it's an impossible relationship in a way it's like at the best it's it's tactful and diplomatic but every filmmaker really just wants to get hold of the film and do it themselves and now of course with Final Cut and all the rest of it you can so I would imagine 
that I shot coverage, and there's probably medium and wide stuff as well. But I think with Juliette Binoche and um, um, Mr. Glenn, I just wanted to get into because it was such an intimate story and short. I uh, just wanted to kind of just stay in really tight, really tight. And the tighter I got on Juliette Binoche, the more powerful it seemed to be, you know. There's, I've got. Oh, there's a question there. Okay. Uh, do, you, do you find it's important that filmmakers tell story that comes from his or her personal experience, or you just don't find that 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 matter, or you can tell any story? Well, I think stories are. Uh, there's a universal truth about stories, which is, you know, let's say, um, and I'll make this as brief as possible, but I believe this to be the, for me, the truth. Cinema comes out of theatre. Theatre comes out of Greek tragedy. Let's say. And it came organically into being because of the idea that if we share certain universal truths about death, life, tragedy, uh, it's a way of discussing and having a sort of a, a sort of theatrical debate about what's inevitably going to happen to all of us. We're all going to experience tragedy as we lose people we love, and then we are ourselves going to exit and create, you know, probably some tragedies as well, you know. So that sort of, let's say, the challenge of life, of how, how you deal with all of that, um, is, uh, you know, has, has always been the thing that's fueled drama, right? And it's got a bit lost, you know, so we now have these stupid comedies and things like that about teenage boys in America, but which I don't really see as having anything to do with preparing us for anything, except... Jesus Christ. Um, so... I would say the universal stories that deal with grief and everything like that are common to everybody. It's a sort of innate thing. I don't think you need to have been a prostitute or an alcoholic or a manic depressive. <laughs> Excuse me. It's my agent. Take it if you want. No, no. Um, there's a really good clip on, on, on YouTube of uh, some play on in New York. And somebody, oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. And the phone is ringing, and obviously the person is so embarrassed that they don't admit that it's coming from their bag, and it keeps on going and going and going. The actors start improvising around it in character, going, you know, hey, go ahead, you know, we'll wait, and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, Dan Craig is in this. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, 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 in answer to your question, I don't think um, it's necessary. I think you either have, let's say, a sympathetic understanding of the universal, some certain universal tragic things and truths, in which case, you know, you respond to them, you know, they resonate for you. Um, and then, of course, sometimes as you get older, you become more and more familiar with these things, you know, inevitably, that's life, you know. But, I mean, you know, there have been some of our greatest poets have been 18, 19, 20, 21, you know, um, and had, seemed to have a profound understanding of the human sort of uh, drama. So I think, I think most, people, most people get it anyway. Often, if you're coming from a, um, a very specific personal point of view, it might, in fact, limit your ability to, to talk about it, you know? Not to clarify, if you want to tell a story about hookers, there's no need to be with a hooker. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I know times are hard, and it's a very expensive school. But <laughs> I want to ask you one question, which I just, I'm just I'm dying to ask sort of on behalf of the assembled masses, because one of the things about your career is this dialogue that you have with uh, industrial cinema all the time, um, and some of the greatest stories about 
um, uh, lies and bullshit there are uh, are Mike Figgis' stories. What I want to know, because all these people here, uh, many of them are going to be dealing with a situation where they have something they feel passionate about, which they're working on with all of their um, might and main, and then they go into an office and then they deal with somebody who has really no understanding of, uh, of, 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 of how much investment there is in that thing. And they've got to somehow make that person feel that they're a collaborator and get through the process. I'm just very interested in looking at those things. Often your stories are about what happens in the cutting room where somebody comes in who's an utter philistine, who's never read the script, and has no understanding of what's going on at all. And you've got to somehow survive the process or keep your cut going. Mm -hmm. But at the moment when you begin a film, when you're starting to develop a film or you meet somebody who's an executive producer and they're about to spend 20 million pounds on whatever it is you've been cooking up in the last six weeks, are you disarmingly honest in the way that you are in, a, in, a, in an ordinary conversation? Uh, do, you, do you have certain things that you say to make them feel reassured so that you'll get to the other end to tell the story about how they screw it up at the other end? What, what are your tips on how to actually manage the process of being an artist in the midst of people whose only interest is money and industry? Um, I think it's, sort of, it's, a, it's a question about energy. I think if you really have a passion for something and an enthusiasm for it, you know, and the worst thing is kind of go, well, you know, it's probably shit, but, you know, I don't know, but, uh, uh, <laughs> you're probably right, it probably is shit, you know. Or, I mean, you've got to be really kind of, like, generous to someone if they're coming like that. But someone who comes in kind of goes, I'm going to, this is, I'm going to knock your socks off, you know. I mean, I, I sold a couple of ideas as verbal pitches, you know, when I've just gone in. I am a good storyteller. You know, and I learned that from my mother, who used to, you know, keep us five kids up till like two in the morning, Thanks. drinking coffee, telling huge whopping lies about you know, <laughs> the war and everything, and truths, you know, and ghost stories. And so this whole tradition of being able to actually tell a story, and that's what it is, you know. So if you, can, if you actually have this great idea, and, and a script is coming, or you've got one, or anything like that, you need to be able to tell that story in such a way and, and engage someone. You know, and then you, and so that kind of got you know, and I, I've done it on my new script, and I, I over dinner to someone recently, and I, and I said, well, you know, and then, well, I'm not going to tell you the rest. Oh, come on, you know. I said, no, I'll send you the script when I've finished the last bit. And he said, I can't wait to see what happens. I mean, that's you know, so. The truth is, if you can do that, you can probably direct as well. You know, you can, you know. Mm. On the other hand, I do know some really talented directors who are shit at. You know, themselves. yeah, about protecting themselves, and they become very kind of you know introverted and everything. Um, the people that you're dealing with in these situations usually don't have much of an imagination. You know, they think they know about scripts; they know nothing. You know, uh, I mean, they really the level of literacy is really frightening. You know, um, their knowledge of storytelling is frighteningly low. So. That's the good news. So you actually go in there. It's not like they're geniuses, you know. But, you know, the ability, and maybe it's something you need to practice a little bit on each other or something, you know. I mean, I don't know if you do that here, of like being a, going to room and just pitching, on. you know. Um, like not getting lost, <laughs> not kind of, you know, meandering, you know. Um, sort of getting to the point and, and actually selling the story in a certain way, setting up the characters in a good way and all the rest of it, you know. That's th that has been in the past what I've done. Um, I don't know. What, you know, now the world is 
it's even tougher, I think, in terms of the fear of executives, in terms of you know what they will or will not green light mm. these days. Thank you. Um, I think, unless we've got one really urgent question, which has got quite a short answer, which we might have. It was just about um, the attitude with, with actors, and I saw, I read in your book how you said you often take the camera and you're right in their face and everything else, and like giving a comparison about the two different ways of directing where sometimes you're incredibly kind of almost interrogating them with the camera mm. and another way where you're sat back and I don't know if you go behind a monitor or anything. Mm. No, I don't. Present. I hate the monitor. And, you know, that's why I shoot. Even if it's second camera, I shoot. Because I know that, the, that the, the relationship is between the camera and the actors. Everything else is like bullshit, you know. The actors know damn well where the focus is quite rightly so it's the camera so when I've been shooting you know sometimes particularly on digital but also on 16 when I did Miss Julie you know and you're doing very long takes you know I was shooting uh, Miss Julie on a with the, the bigger magazines that would shoot you know what's like almost 20 minutes you know so you can really get into something and it, you know and if it's really starting to build you can you're holding the camera you say okay go back go back go back do that again do that again I wasn't in the right position so you know and, and actors love it they love the idea that you're there with them your energies with them and you you know and the other thing I try and do often with cinematographers is say look please engage with the actors don't be neutral don't pretend you're not there you know in case you're going to offend them be be there for them with that same kind of vibe and f physicality that they've got I mean, great acting is about a certain kind of energy. It can be expressive or it can be um, compressed energy. And you've got a kind of signal, that energy, in a way, the way that you speak to them and everything like that has got to be correct for the energy that you're expecting back from them. It's very, very interesting. I think I have to destroy this at some point. <laughs> um, yeah, so I... I from a directing point of view, that, that, that to me is crucial, that you engage. You know, you don't do the Ridley Scott thing of saying, when the, and he says, do it again, and the actor says, you know, well, what do you want different? I'd like it better. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know. Um, no, you've got to, you know, they're brave and they do things, and if you really, if you go with them, they'll give you like 200% more, you know. I interviewed uh, David Lynch and I said to him, do you think all actors are capable of giving a performance? And he said, absolutely. It's a question of time. You know, some actor might take four times longer than the other actor. So your job as a director is to kind of work out the ratio of how much time you're going to spend and where you're going to put your emphasis. But yeah, if you're prepared to go, pretty much every time, you know, an actor will ultimately give you what you want. But then you've got to be, actually, the tricky part is you've got to know what you want. So often you're in a situation where you, you know, you're hoping the actor will give you that. Then you're kind of gambling a little bit with your, with your, with your idea. You know, I mean, the actor might, you might have a strong idea and the actor might have a better idea, but then at least you had two choices. But you know, the energy thing is, is crucial. Let's get some oxygen. Yeah, let's get some oxygen and some drink. Thank okay. you very much.